Yeah. Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora, bridging the gap between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am Dr. Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for the group discussion today. And as usual, we are joined by Dr. Nigam Aurora. Hey, everyone. And guess who's back? Guess who's back? Guess who's back? Returning to the show, calling in from Seattle, Dr. Amber Y, Scientific Director at Medicine Creek Analytics. Hi, everybody. And our first time guest, Anna Simons, Chief Communication Officer at East Fork Cultivators and Women's Premier League Rugby Player. Great to have you on the show. Thank you. Well, listener, we have a great show for you today. For our popular literature discussion, we'll be just we'll go into a bit of, on patents for deuterated DMT. We'll talk about psychedelic research beginning in Australia, as well as a discussion on if cannabis degrees are legit and do you need one to get into the legal cannabis industry. For our rapid fire science discussion, we'll go over a cannabis use in sport review. And we'll follow that up with a study on how psychedelic researchers, self-admitted substance use, and their association with psychedelic culture affects the public's perception of their scientific integrity and the quality of their research. So don't wear a tie-dye at conferences. More on that later. And as usual, we will end the show with a game. And today's game is called Don't Be an Acetate Hole. And we'll basically be playing Two Truths and a Lie about THO acetate. So stick around and test your knowledge about THC isomers. We'll be right back after a short break. And we're back. Now it's time for us to peruse and discuss some news and popular science articles. This is the non-peer-reviewed portion of the show, and away we go. First up is a story about a patent for deuterated DMT being issued to small pharma. Is it a meaningful advancement in psychedelic drug chemistry or simply IP play? So we have to first discuss a little bit about deuterated drugs. What are they? Well, they're basically about a billion dollar market. And this is when you add a heavier isotope of hydrogen to these two existing drugs to alter their pharmacokinetics, to alter maybe toxicological properties. Uh, some of the effects are unexpected. Some of them are obvious. But now that it's worked for some drugs on the market, people are moving in to you know, modify psychedelics in order to patent them. So Nigam, um, I guess I'll go to you first. Are, are you going to line up to try deuterated DMT? Are you super excited that someone's altering the kinetics of a drug we barely understand? Uh, definitely not lining up. Um, I think the the way you read it off in the beginning is is the way that I also think about it. You know, is it meaningful chemistry or is it an IP play? So to to share a little background. And I was recently discussing this uh, with Del Potter, friend of the show, who does uh, novel psychedelic drug development, uh, you know, day in, day out. And um, and we were talking about how this thing of deuterating molecules, known molecules, is not a new thing. It's been happening for decades. And it's commonly, there's two things that are common. One is that it's an IP play. It's the simplest, smallest change you can make to a molecule, 
chemists don't need to do anything hard. It's not complex. It's not novel, but you can do it. And then you can file a patent because it's technically just the slightest bit. It's like almost the least different it can be while still being chemically different. I see Amber smiling. Um, <laughs> so anyways, um, so, so that's a, a simple reality. Now, the other thing that has been claimed on and off, and I, I think it matters in individual circumstances that there's are benefits for the like f- efficacy or the the uh, outcome of of the drug use itself. So, for example, some people will claim it's creates a longer lasting effect of the same drug, or that it increases potency in certain circumstances. So, Jayon, I think what you said in the beginning though about a drug we <laughs> don't already don't understand. And for the listener, this is the psilocybin alpha. Uh, dot com article actually it was a lot of it was written by graham pashenik friend of the show guest of the show as well who's the psychedelic ip attorney and you know things like potency more potency well that sounds like a good thing but you know whether or not that is a good thing with dmt is is yet i think to be determined um do you want it to last 20 minutes or eight hours do we really know and um you know, and I want to go to you and kind of discuss a little bit about just some like from a 30,000 foot view, um, you know, what do you, what are you, I guess, excited about and not excited about in terms of altering the chemistry of compounds like DMT for, you know, a longer effect, a more potent effect? Um, do you have like some, some, you know, happy thoughts about that and some like sad thoughts about that? Oh, okay. Well, I think it goes back to that same statement. We don't really understand to begin with what we're working with um, in the, I guess, more traditional sense of what people have been using. And so I tend to uh, lean towards traditional methods of consumption for whatever it may be, whether that is smoking cannabis plants, you know, or (laughs) so, um, I guess I'm generally overall not excited about um, pharma iterations. I mean, I I do support having testing for substances and have them to be verified that they are what they say they are. They're safe. They're um, you know not contaminated. But um, I'm not excited necessarily by like uh, tech drugs. I gotcha. I gotcha. You might be more excited if someone standardized a, an ayahuasca DMT beverage versus isolating that compound out of the preparation and, and altering it chemically. You'd be like, well, you know, we still don't even have access to traditional preparations and understand those. And we haven't figured out how to store those things long term. Uh, so, you know, you might be more excited about that side of it, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, I think that's my my personal inclination. Absolutely. And, you know, Amber, you know, you're a chemist, you do analytical chemistry. Um, would you be, you know, I guess, does this mean that you, your lab will soon open a branch to, to test uh, DMT analogs and psychedelic analogs uh, preparations? Or do you think that that's a long way off? Well, it's actually complicated as a cannabis testing lab. I'm not allowed to have psychedelic or, or test for 
other controlled substances because I have to have a DEA license and the DEA won't acknowledge the cannabis we have on site, which is state legal because we didn't obtain it from a DEA licensed facility. So it's a bit of a catch 22 with that. I mean, yeah, I would love to run all kinds of analyses, um, but it is much more complicated than that. Uh, so if I, if I, if I sent a DMT loaded vape pen to just say a brand X analytical lab, and they analyzed it, they would not legally be able to have the standards to tell what was in it. They might be like, it might come back with like, this says 0% THC in it. Like, it's We're allowed to have the standards because of the way they're prepared, but we're not allowed to have that DMT cartridge in our facility mm. that we did not obtain from a DEA licensed distributor. That's, that's the caveat there. That's my understanding. I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, understood, understood. But you know, as, as time goes on, the the scientists in the cannabis space tend to tend to sound like lawyers. But I guess if you had the opportunity to say apply for an additional license to be able to do the same testing you do on cannabis for psychedelics and psychedelic products, do you think that you know the mushroom and the plant would get along together in the lab, or that just like you need separate equipment to do that stuff? Uh, no, you, you can definitely use the same instrumentation, obviously slightly different extraction chemistries, potentially different separation chemistries, um, but you can use the same instrumentation pretty easily uh, for sure. All right. Well, speaking of taking on psychedelic research, I want to move on to our next story um, from the Sydney Morning Herald in Australia about a $40 million psychedelic medicine institute being launched in Melbourne. From an undisclosed uh, donor or investor. And this is probably because they didn't want their bank account shut down. I don't know if many of you know this, but if you put the word uh, psychedelic or cannabis or make any sort of purchases like that, like you buy a conference ticket to a cannabis conference, your bank account might be shut down from being a cannabis business. True story. Ask around. Um, so I have to wonder if you know this anonymous donor isn't a shady way of going about it, but it's just the way they're forced to do it. Yeah. So uh, this article is really cool because oh, I learned a few things. One is that there's already some psychedelics research going on in Australia. Um, there's a psilocybin study already occurred there um, and work towards, I believe, so some MDMA studies and, and other stuff. So um, it's not brand new to the area. Also, um, this institute has, you know, it's kind of interesting these days in the pandemic and as everything goes remote, when you say we're starting something like how much does the geography matter? In some cases, it does matter because they were saying like, we haven't done these studies in our own populations in our own country. So it does matter to like look at it in local populations. But on the flip side, it seemed like they're institute their kind of concept of this thing is actually global because they're saying they have research or university partners they're partnered with imperial college london who you know obviously is a leader in psychedelics research they've got a partner in brazil uh and they have a partner in two, two or three other places um so i i think it is uh going to be um fairly legitimate um Institute for research. Now it's easy to say that when you see $40 million and when it's in the news and it sounds cool, but, um, you know, it, it, time will tell, we'll, we'll see what kind of research comes out of it. But, um, 
I, I think the point you were making about like the funding, that, that's kind of interesting to like stay so quiet about it. But you know, the, the barriers you were talking about are real. So uh, yeah, I think, I think I'm just kind of waiting. I'm, I'm ready to read the papers. I'm ready to, and also to see like, do they do research? Do they put out papers? Are they contributing to public health and mental health for people, for patients? Or is it another one of these things that starts mm. as a, you know, nonprofit or an institute or an academic project. And then in three years from now, it's compass 2.0, 3 .0, 5 .0. Or, or, or they're broke and the people who got the money just took it and misspent it and ran. I mean, we see that in the cannabis space, like institutes start up, they get a bunch of money. Sometimes they're off to the races doing clinical studies. Sometimes you're like, what the hell are they doing? Like they, they had money a minute ago and now they're coming around asking us for more money, but they haven't published any papers. We don't know what they do. And, and yeah, I, I wonder, I wonder about that too, Nigam. Like, are is this center going to be a real center, or is it going to try to be a one-stop shop for pharma development? And this is just sort of laying a very basic foundation. It'll be really interesting to see. I mean, certainly they do have a bit of a track record to talk about the other side, like saying, like, oh yeah, they have done some research. They seem to be interested in it. The group published a paper recently, I believe, on MDMA, um, and I think that. Um, <laughs> I think that that's some, some good street cred for them. Um, you know, Amber, I wanted to ask you if there's anything that, uh, you, you found surprising about this article or that spoke to you. Uh, I mean, I think the amount of money is potentially enough to get some meaningful stuff done, right? If, if it's not mismanaged, if they don't take it and run. I don't know anything about these specific researchers, so I don't want to indicate that they're shady in any way. <laughs> I want to give them the benefit of the doubt and assume they're professionals. Um, but, you know, it was $40 million over five years, which is $8 million a year. Um, that's when you break it down that way, it's not a, a ton of money, you know, in term, it depends on how many salaries you're paying and and all of that, do you have to build facilities? I mean, it's a little unclear what stage of development this is. Um, are they ready to move in and, and start up you know, soon or is this just a conceptual thing? Um, it's a little unclear from this article, but uh, it does seem to be significant and interesting for sure to see another um, location in the world you know, launching this kind of work, the more the better um, to tackle all the various things that need to get you know, fundamentally researched. Yeah, and I like what you said. You, they seem professional, and we'll discuss a little bit of research about that later. I guess it depends on how many psychedelic dad jokes they crack while they're presenting their data will determine the public's perception of how credible they are. But we'll talk about some of that that data right now. Um, Anna Simons, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Australia. You know, Australia has kind of a different sport base to it. Like, like there's a lot of like cricket players. There's a fair amount of interest in rugby there you know, tennis and soccer, not necessarily the sports that the U.S. is super keen on. You know, if you were able to, to, you know, talk to these researchers about doing psychedelic research, say in rugby or in another sport that you're familiar with, you know, what would you want them to look at or like, like perform enhancing performance, injury recover, recovery, like head trauma? Is there an area where you think like, you know, Australia, again, they have more of an interest in sports that maybe the u.s isn't focused on and that might might make it a good area to study psychedelics in that intersection but you know i guess if you could wave a magic wand 
what would you want to study in Australia with $40 million in psychedelics and sports? Yeah, I think head trauma, concussion, CTE, and potential healing from those types of injuries would be a huge benefit. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, even though the sports, well, Australians are sports fanatics, generally speaking, they have great weather (laughs) to play year round. And so um, most people are pretty active um, and, and are fans of not only their own um, sports, which are more popular there, like, you know, Australian rules, football, rugby union, rugby league. Um, yeah, cricket, all those, but, um, I mean, surfing is big, you know, water, there are all kinds of ways to get injured. And <laughs> yeah, um, they seem yeah. to really like those sports that deal a lot with injuries. So maybe that could be the new hub for like sports medicine and psychedelic research, because it's, it's not like golf is the most popular sport there. Like <laughs> it's, it's serious. Like like hardcore sports where people are putting their bodies on the line. Golfers need psychedelics too, man. Don't hate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We got Tiger Woods on the show. See what he thinks. Um, like, be like, yeah. I, although I think they might have trouble tracking where a tiny ball went as it flew 300 <laughs> yards away. Like longest, longest hole ever. Like, <laughs> And I had one other kind of re- related question. This is more about the geography than the article itself. So, um, I believe you were part of some uh, decriminalization efforts um, related to uh, drugs and 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 psychedelics in that category. Um, So I'm curious what you think. Uh, You know, we're seeing this research come out of Australia, but I haven't seen, you know, we see this decrim stuff happening in other parts of the world and the individual cities and in the U.S. and stuff. Do you do you know much about the the culture there? Do you think there'll be a decrim at some point, or is this just like we we're talking about? Is it pure pharmaceutical, or are the people going to benefit? Yeah. So I actually I played rugby in Australia years ago and spent some time there. I have very good friends and and have visited over the years regularly. So the culture around Australia is much more conservative around drugs than it is in the U.S. in general. Um, cannabis is heavily stigmatized even that people regard it and treat it the same as meth, honestly. And so um, when it comes to something like psychedelics, that's way more out there than the conversation has become, certainly on the coasts in the U.S. I'm Uh, interested to hear how bad their analogy is for taking psychedelics. Like, that's like going into space without a spacesuit. Like, (laughs) It it would probably be the, you know, your brain on drugs, egg in the frying pan. I don't think they had that commercial like we did, but um, I do think there would be the, you know, the drug propaganda is, is uh, probably the general perception. You know, that is, that is a great point, I think. And I used to get really upset, Anna, when I would hear these things about misinformation and this sort of propaganda being perpetuated, like, I mean, you know, I used to I used to blow a gasket every time I saw marijuana spelled with an H and then New York put in its regulations that way. And I just had to, like, get over it. But these sort of things, I think they create a lot of opportunities for folks like us to go out there and educate. So on one hand, it sucks um, that the stigma exists. But on the other hand, it shows that it's creating a lot of jobs for people who are knowledgeable and have experience um, from different perspectives and different backgrounds. And you know, speaking to that, to just 
move it along from bestcolleges.com, you know, they talk about our cannabis degrees legit. We, we don't even know if there's going to be degrees in psychedelics research, but right now, as, as more and more states are legalizing cannabis, there are cannabis college degrees and programs are moving. Even Australia has uh, the Lambert Center, you know, for studying cannabis is there. And there's probably graduate students aren't necessarily getting degrees in cannabis, but getting training in its in the study of the plant and the endocannabinoid system. But the industry as a whole, one needs skilled labor. Um, but it also there's a lot of other regulatory requirements for training popping up. And so, you know, right now it's something like 16 states um, have some sort of legal program for accessing it, 36 have some sort of medical program. And now colleges and universities are taking notes. Some offer certificate programs. Some are creating majors. Um, you know, uh, I think there's a, uh, is it North Michigan or, or whatever? They have a program where they just sort of repackaged all their agricultural classes and called it cannabis. We don't actually learn about cannabis. You just learn skills that may apply to the cannabis industry because, you know, it's still difficult to get a true quote unquote degree in cannabis. You might be able to get a master's certificate or things like that. Um, you know, I'm adjunct faculty at university of sciences and I'm not, I don't represent them or speak for them, but you know, this is part of a certificate course I teach for business majors and pharmacists. It's, it's not like you can major in weed and you get a certificate in like academic font, this doctorate is in weed. And then like the president of the, you know, institution signs it. But, you know, I guess I want to talk to Amber first about this. You know, you, you actively work in an analytical testing lab that, that is part of the industry. And, you know, you probably have had your share of interviewing folks to work at the lab. Um, you know, and I assume that having a degree in science is important, but having a degree in cannabis, I mean, would that, was that something that would make someone stand out right now for you? Like if you were hiring or is that something like maybe in the future, it might make a difference? Yeah. I mean, I think right now, if I saw someone with a cannabis degree, I would question if they actually finished because they're also new. Um, <laughs> but I mean, certainly I don't think that that's a requirement. Um, I mean, what we do in an analytical lab is straight chemistry and there are definitely a lot of cannabis caveats and how you handle sample prep and you know, um, interferences and things that are specific to the cannabis plant. But fundamentally what we do is what any analytical chemist would do at a testing lab for soils or water, or whatever, um, agricultural products. Um, so, you know, for running an analytical lab, I don't necessarily think people need that experience. I do think particularly if you um, only have a straight chemistry degree, I think having a small amount of personal experience with cannabis products can be helpful just so you understand a little bit about the differences, um, but it's definitely not necessary. We have a wide range of staff at our facility that have a very wide range of experiences from absolutely zero to you know, very, very um, advanced, I would say. So, uh, so maybe just a, a dab of cannabis education will do you, right? You don't... <laughs> Uh, yeah, but I did, what What I also thought was interesting, or I think what I'd like to reiterate about this article is that um, there's a number, there's two, I would, I would separate the types of cannabis programs into two general categories. One are the accredited, quote unquote, accredited categories, which is very different than 
the various um, online or kind of certificate programs. And having worked as a professor for a number of years, and I actually sat on the curriculum committee for a few years at a university, is very difficult to start a new program, and particularly an accredited major. So a couple of these universities, I did get a chance to review some of their requirements and the classes that they offer, um, and they seem really legit. And uh, you know, those are not easy things to do. This didn't happen overnight. This was a number of different academics coming together and planning and discussing, writing proposals, submitting them to curriculum review boards. These are very long drawn out processes to get full, you know, multi-year accredited programs, which are very different than some online for-profit certificate programs. And it's not always easy to tell the difference from the consumer side or the student side. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. It's hard to tell if you should uh, hang it on your wall or use the certificate as toilet paper sometimes. Um, because you know, they, some of them, you know, I, I've been to conferences because I've done teaching and training in, for nonprofits, for universities, for CME. And there are different levels of standards for sort of the sausage machine that your information has to go through before it's approved for consumption. And, you know, I remember going up to this one group um, and, and I said, well, what I was looking at their binders. Where did you get this information? They're like, oh, I just Googled it and printed out the first 10 things that showed up, put it in a binder. And yeah, and they sell this for a few hundred dollars. And I was just like, wow. Um, so, you know, I think that's a basic question is, is your cannabis training program better than a quick internet search? And if, if the answer isn't clear, you might want to look elsewhere. But here's a here's just a couple of the ones that Amber was alluding to. You know, Colorado State University, Lake Superior, Northern Michigan University, Stockton University. There's also, like I said, University of Sciences. And you know, full disclosure, I, I I'm adjunct faculty there. There's also. Um, Thomas Jefferson University has one, University of Maryland has one. So a lot of legitimate programs are popping up. Now, the drawback to these is they're more expensive. They don't cost just like $10 and not everyone gets a trophy. You have to actually do homework, um, but you do get to interact with actual experts in the field who have things like publications and, and credentials. But, you know, um, but one of the things I've been interested in with cannabis, I'm going to try to set this question up for you, Anna, is, is uh you know, is in sort of niche or specialized areas in cannabis. And, and one of my things I do in my free time, which is largely for a two hour window on Saturday mornings is uh, I've been trying to get my sports medicine accreditation. because so I've been wanting to go into like either physical therapy or training or be able to do research in the area like sports and cannabis. And uh, one thing I realized is like, there's really no information about drugs in a lot of these programs. Now I'm doing it through a private uh, academy in, in Manhattan, but I thought I want, I would love to get your perspective. Like, you know, there's a lot of people who go on to open up martial arts schools or gyms or be trainers or even be, you know, pro athletes themselves. If they're, if they're like really, you know, they just, if they have the opportunity to, but you know, a lot of those people have backgrounds in like kinesiology or fitness. Um, and they take, you know, undergraduate classes to really learn the science of, you know, how to build muscle, how to, how to lose weight, you know, how to be healthy in the sport. And, but I imagine if many of them wanted to study cannabis in sports or integrate cannabis into training or rehabilitation, there might be some good things to blend with cannabis. And so, you know, if you could be the Dean at like a kinesiology department, 
you know, what would you want sort of people who are studying sports medicine, studying rehabilitation? Are there aspects of cannabis education you think might be unique to them? Or is it might just be sort of the same general education? Like everyone should learn about the basics of cannabis and the endocannabinoid system. What, what are some thoughts you might have there? I think you could definitely get more specialized. I do think medical professionals should learn about the endocannabinoid system. I mean, it's a, the body's primary homeostatic regulatory system and they're not learning about it. So, um, because there's a, a bias and a stigma. Crazy. So, um, but I do think specializing in sports medicine, you can probably go deeper and we don't have a lot of research just yet. Um, but there's the opportunity to do a lot more. And I think pretty, and I think that research then reflects back onto the normal population, sort of the you know, non-athlete general population with things like metabolic syndrome and understanding how cannabis affects um, you know, energy storage and uptake in those things that so we know that it does. So uh, I think that's I, a great point. Like if you're a long distance runner versus like I said, playing golf, you know, you have these different levels of intensity of sport is cannabis going to be good? You know, is it going to enhance or take away from that training or that activity? And, and like you said, like affecting energy levels, I think that would be a great thing for, you know, a, a personal fitness trainer or, 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 you know, a sports medicine doc to understand. This is a great point. And pain management obviously is a huge one as well. I, I like that a lot. Is golf becoming like our new Florida? It's just, a, it's just a four-letter word that we can say on this show. <laughs> you know, I would, I would like to add to the discussion on degrees, though, because I actually applied and was accepted for a, a master's in medical cannabis therapeutics, but I did not enroll because of the cost. And I think at the time it was like, I sort of hoped that my company would be able to help with it. Uh, and they were like, no, we can't. And the whole thing... The other reason, you know, and giving all credit to the faculty and good intentions of creating the program, it is expensive. I think getting that degree and credential would be about, you know, 35 grand or something. And wow. when I looked at the curriculum, it was a lot of stuff that I, having worked in the cannabis industry for about you know five years, already knew as, you know, and, and when you look at like the outcomes, it's like a job in the cannabis industry. Like, but I already have that. And, um, and I, yeah, I mean, and you're probably, there's probably a couple slides that mention you in some of these presentations. Uh, yeah. Well, I, <laughs> I have luckily with my job, you know, I'm, I have the opportunity to read cannabis science, you know, all the time and then explain it to people. And so I'm already familiar with a lot. I, I would undoubtedly learn other new things, but I was like, oh, I can't justify paying because the other thing is like with that program, you're not, you were not eligible for any like scholarships or anything, There's mm. no funding. And so in a way it felt a little, I don't want to say cash grab, but you know, it just, it's a big expense. And to be frank, jobs in the cannabis industry are not high paying. We're a very volatile growing, you yeah. know, industry. And so, um, I definitely don't think that people need a cannabis degree um, nobody's looking for it right now. And um, if you're, if you're brand new to the industry, maybe it would be worth your investment. But 
Yeah, that that's a great point. Like, because if you can get your foot in the door and start entry level, get experience, you, you may not need it because you're going to learn it in the real world. You're going to learn it from experience. And, and and Anna, maybe you're right. Like, you know, maybe taking that whole course, a lot of it would be like, why am I here? But there's probably be like a small percentage of it that would be great to have. And so it'd be great if they had like a master's course for this or something that was really high level, which is like new topics in cannabis, because I can't tell you how many, I don't think I could sit through an endocannabinoid system one-on-one talk. Like I've been to so many of them. I've given so many of them. I'm like, I, I should not have to do this. Um, but you know, uh, so it would be cool to see, I think more specialized degrees. That's kind of what I'm, I'm hearing from you is like, this is really expensive. I don't need everything here. I need, I need stuff that wasn't covered by my, you know, groundbreaking work in the cannabis space. Right. I think, you know, Nigga, you might feel similarly, like, could you imagine if like you had to pay 35 grand to like learn about cannabis cultivation or like, you know, cannabis formulation? You're like, I've been doing that for like years. Like why, why, why would I pay to have someone certify me uh, or give me a piece of paper? But, you know, if I would actually, Nigam, if you want to send me $35,000, I will print out a beautiful diploma for you and I will sign it. Jayhan's got a really good printer. He's got a fancy pen, really good printer. Um, but, best you know, best Sharpie you money one? can buy. I'll <laughs> yeah. send you $10. How about that? I, sure. I, do, I do want to <laughs> chime in on like a few, a few things on this topic. Um, one was, Anna, as you were saying, you've been in the industry for five years. Uh, before you were chief communications at East Fork, I believe you were like head of education or a similar title. The point is you're educating a lot of people. Jehan teaches about cannabis. Amber teaches about cannabis. I'm doing some CME stuff right now for cannabis. So like, I feel like, I guess the point that I'm getting at is I think there's a few routes and I don't think, you know, there's, I don't think any route is necessarily bad. It's just that finding the route that works for you makes sense. So for like, this group and and for folks who you know are in, in our in our circle here on the podcast, like we would fall less into the category of people who would take a cannabis degree, and I think we would be the people teaching the cannabis degree, and we already <laughs> do that day in day. I yeah. mean, Jahan literally teaches cannabis courses. Yeah. I mean, you literally teach people about cannabis for your job, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and I think like what I teach is not necessarily basic stuff, like. I'm teaching people who have already had a career. Like two of my students, one's a former or is a current OBGYN taking time off of his practice to learn about cannabis. Another one has been working in the beverage retail space for like 10 years, wants to learn about cannabis and incorporating that into it. And the, I, the, we're doing supply chain management courses. We're doing pharmacology classes. It's It's not like, hey, everyone, welcome to the weed boom. And like, you know, it, it's, it's a very targeted discussion. Like one of the assignments for my students in the supply chain was, you know, it was, it was truncated, but they had to fill out a cannabis license for the state of Pennsylvania, like download it, fill out the section, submitted it. And I got to grade it. And that was a lot of fun. How many, li- um, how many licenses did you issue? <laughs> Zero. Was, was it capped? Is it capped? Was it capped? In, there, was in... cap. there was a cap. They, they did really well. The, I the thought. cap I was mean, zero. This is an the, exercise. This is the cool. one. The one student got a lot of, did really well because he filled out, it went above and beyond. He even filled out like fake names and backgrounds for his employees and principal holders wow. just to like go so far as like, he wasn't just filling out the essay sections, got really into it. And I think those students 
And I think this maybe ties back to the degree programs is like, it's not so much that you just take a degree program and pass the classes, whatever you put into it is what you'll get out. And I have some students who put like everything into these assignments. And I try to give them as much feedback as possible because they're really kind of push the envelope and learn as much as possible. So they're, they're, you, won't, you don't really know what the assignments will be till you take the program. But for me, I'd like to think about if, I, if it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, um, I would want a course like the one I'm teaching that would like expose me to things I would not be have been exposed to on like a light speed track. Like here, here's a license application, fill it out. And you're just like, boom, what do I do? Yeah, yeah. there's... I, I didn't I didn't take a I mean I filled out a lot of license applications there was no course for me you know <laughs> yeah <the> trial by <laughs> so, fire yeah I filled out I filled out applications in a bunch of states uh, you know there's no I did not take a course you had to learn it on the ground so Jahan I just wanted to say my other two thoughts on this concept one you already just nailed on the head so I'll say it briefly which is for people who are seeking a certain thing and the program meets their goal, then I think that's good. So like you were saying, you know, industry professionals have experience, but they want to learn niche topics or they're shifting industries. Like you just highlighted, I think that's golden. Also, this thing that Anna was saying about the master's program, I think I know the one you're talking about. Um, it's, uh, and, I, and I know some people who went through that program I'm thinking of, but it's like, if uh, you were someone who was dissimilar from you, Anna, who was going to go to grad school anyway, was going to spend money on a master's anyway, didn't have the cannabis experience and wanted to go through that. Oh, okay. I can see that. So once again, it's like, it needs to be the right fit. The last comment that I'll make, and this is not what the article was about. The article was not about medical school. You guys are talking about, you know, kinesiologists and trainers and, you know, I'm thinking of doctors, medical doctors, sport doctors. Or to be clear to the listener, the article was not about that. It was about more undergraduate, masters, general education. Um, but uh, Anna and Jehan, as, as you all were chopping it up earlier uh, about physiology, kinesiology, sport, all this, um, it just rang in my head this thing like, you know, thousand word article or fifteen hundred word article. There was not one line about medical school, doctors, pharmacists, uh, pharmaceutical formulators wasn't a single line about it. And and that's like, I think, I don't remember if it was an article we we saw recently, or yeah. maybe it was when we had a, a, an MD on the show recently. I think it's like 97% of medical schools in the year 2021 don't teach a, a word. They don't even say the word endocannabinoid. So I'm just, I'm going off a little bit like into no, a separate. I think it's, it's a good point. Nick. I'm like, you know, these programs tie hand in hand with, with medical school programs. There's pre-med programs, right? So why not get this stuff? Why not get the cannabis out of the way early in life <laughs> um, versus trying to jam it into medical school? So I think that that is a great point. And the industry, there's a quote in the article. I mean, it's very subtle. It's like the industry needs pharmacologists and all these other things. Well, that's you know, you don't just like, oh, uh, you know, you don't just like eat a hoagie and like, like, oh, I'm going to go become a pharmacologist. Like, sounds like a good idea. You know, this is, it's a whole process and years of study. And I think that, you know, you're right. Like there really isn't a mention of this and the industry needs to hire safety people, toxicologists, pharmacists are required at many, many, and many more dispensaries and operations are even required to have some sort of medical expert as part of their team. And where are they going to get their expertise on cannabis? Some are fortunate enough to have that experience of 
you know, being a certifier or recommender for cannabis or being a researcher, but many do not have those opportunities. And tying it back to the sports medicine piece, I do think that's very important because we see a very high prevalence of athletes who use cannabis and they're not allowed to talk about it. And we're not getting the medical care that's fully informed that we need because our physicians aren't informed. Like my, my doctor who I love and I've had a great relationship with for years is also the team physician for an NBA team. And I finally got up the gumption to ask my doctor to sign my medical marijuana card form. So I wouldn't have to go pay, you know, an extra fee to a clinic that just signs your form. Um, And we had a discussion, he did it, but I was like, you know what, well, what do you know about cannabis? And he just said some like top line, like harms research, like very basic and, and like even CBD, he's like, well, it can harm the liver enzymes. And I was like, oh, I have to, you know, I don't have the time to start. (laughs) Like, can, can I send you reams of studies for you to look at? I don't know, you know, but this is a wonderful physician who's been very cutting edge with me on injuries and like worked me through so many things with my body and, and wonderfully open-minded and osteopath as well. And, and I was like, and I just said, you know, though, I was like, you know, you work with this NBA team and, and I guarantee you that a majority of those players are using it. So you might really want to spend some extra time learning about it. And it sucks that they have to do that. It should be part of, um, you know, it's part of our lives. It's becoming more and more legal. So for cannabis, that, that needs to be formalized for medical professionals. It would be kind I, of a shame if like, uh, this is RJ and I was just saying, it would be kind of a shame if like, imagine it's all 50 states have medical cannabis and no medical schools are teaching it. That would be kind of like a backward shame, wouldn't it? Probably we're there. almost there. We're to 35. Yeah. Yeah, so we're, we're, we're almost there. It's the, just the majority of medical schools. Um, in states where people can purchase cannabis just as easily as alcohol. Uh, okay. Well, I think that, you know, talking about the intersection of education, cannabis use and sport is a great place to take a short break so we can come back and actually talk about a systematic review published in sports health and the journal of sports health research. So listener, this wraps up our popular literature coverage. We'll be back with our rapid fire science after this short break. I'm David Valancourt, founder and CEO of the GMP Collective. We educate and provide best practice standardization across the emerging cannabis and life science industries. By working in a collaborative manner, our clients realize unrivaled product quality and the ability to sustainably grow their business through compliance and operational efficiencies. Find us online at gmpcollective.com or shoot us an email at info at gmpcollective.com. Enjoy the show. And we're back. Welcome to Rapid Fire Science, where we go around providing commentary and discussion about peer-reviewed scientific articles. Our first article is entitled Cannabis Use in Sport, a Systematic Review, published in the Journal of Sports Health. And uh, the last name of the first author is literally Dr. with an E. 
But um, so Dr. et al. published this study in 2020, which was a systematic review of studies on cannabis use among athletes, looking at kind of performance, recovery, and, and regulations for the use in sport. It's a cool article, one, because it has a table kind of summarizing the outcomes of different observational work, but also a table summarizing some of the restrictions uh, in different professional sports leagues. Uh, what was surprising to me uh, was um, that cannabis did not appear to positively affect performance, but the literature surrounding this is generally poor. Now, uh, Anna, you're, you're arguably the expert uh, in this podcast on cannabis use in sport. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you a little bit about the, the concept here about cannabis use in sport. And and maybe I, I do you think maybe the researchers got using cannabis and then playing the sport versus having cannabis as part of, you know, your program to, to help you train or exercise. Um, I think there might be a disconnect there because clearly I'm not going to like, you know, hit a bong and then go like, I'm going to go to the jujitsu tournament. This is going to work out great. Um, you know, I, that, but it might be part of the recovery. So, you know, when I hear, oh, cannabis use does not include performance, I think it, it does it depend on when you're using it, right? That might be a, a, an aspect to consider here. Absolutely. But I think, I mean, there were a few things about this. So number one, it was a review. So I didn't look at all 37 studies and see, you know, but when I look at some of the summaries, what jumps out to me is um, in studies looking at use, the majority were level four studies of high school, elite and university level athletes. So young people who haven't lived that long, and some of them are in high school, even if they're an elite level high school athlete. And so, I mean, they do note, uh, this was self-reported. So it was probably underreported. Like, yeah, there's a huge stigma. Um, this was also done, uh, this uh, well, maybe the researchers, some of it was Canadian anyway. Um, and I do think that my experience playing rugby in Canada, um, cannabis use was more stigmatized as like, oh, that's drugs than in the on the west coast of the u.s but um yeah. i do think this is not not capturing the full range and again it's a review but a lot of athletes are using cannabis for recovery as you pointed out and they do say oh nothing looked at that and we think that's an area where there needs to be more but there are people who've used cannabis um before competing uh people that i've plenty of people i've talked to in the, the nfl the nba um, people that I play with who smoke right before the game, right after all day, you know, and it is medicine to their bodies because that's their, their constitution. Like some people perform for me, THC does not promote, um, or, you know, I should say more than a microdose doesn't promote a uh, better sports performance because it takes away the edge of aggression that I need. <laughs> um, but for some people it puts them in the zone and, and that a not insignificant number of athletes is my personal experience. So I looked at this and I was like, ah, this basically says nothing. I'm sorry. We don't have enough research about this. Well, you said, <laughs> yeah. you said it, you said it before I had to say it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. And I, I agree with your points that, you know, the target groups are looking at in this review may not apply to you know, maybe an older athlete, maybe an NBA player in their late 20s or an NFL player towards the end of their career and how cannabis use might play into their performance or their lifestyle or as a factor 
in the longevity of their career or injury recovery. It doesn't really talk about that. Um, but, you know, Amber, I wanted to get your sort of feedback on this as we've heard from Anna and Nigam about, well, this study doesn't really, you know, mean anything. Now, you know, I'm not in favor of like high school kids using cannabis and playing sports. I've definitely talked to people who have um, were high school students once themselves and said like, yeah, it made me swim slower as much as I enjoyed it. it just, it wasn't great for that period in my life. But um, I still think there is a big need to improve our understanding that the effects of cannabis use has and being really clear about what we mean when we say cannabis use. Is it during the sport? Is it outside the sport? Uh, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this review article by Doctor published in Sports Health. Yeah, I had a couple thoughts as I read through this. Um, one was, you know, they they had a lot of strict exclusion criteria. So when they say there were no studies or no data on a number of different things, they excluded a lot, a lot of studies that I wasn't able to look up. So. I think there is more information out there than this paper might lead you to believe. Um, in particular, they they didn't include 30 different review papers. Um, and obviously this, this specific publication was looking for data that they could then analyze and include. And so review papers are generally excluded, but still that, you know, there's there are some publications out there that cover this. But to answer your question, Jehan, it absolutely depends on the usage and the timing and the intention. Um, and there were a number that one of the other things that stood out to me was there were, I think, nine of these different studies that were included were high school or adolescent self-reported use. And so are they really using it as a potential, um, you know, enhancer or just because they're in high school and they live in France? Uh, you know? and, uh, this is what we do. Huh? We take some <laughs> cannabis, we swim around, we kick the ball. Like it is great. Uh, yeah. I mean, what? What and, and is it and what is the criteria for being a cannabis user in these studies? And is it really cannabis they're looking at? Because in Europe, and I was going to say what's going on in France, why so many of these studies seem to be focused on French populations of young athletes, is you know cannabis use in Europe might be tobacco with a little bit of cannabis. You know the sort of the spliff conundrum in research and and why it's difficult to cross compare observational work is just the definition of a joint scientifically speaking might be really different and you know i've been to the cannabis museum in the netherlands and they they have an american joint is a display item and it's like pure cannabis it's it's like something out of like indiana jones for them they're like wow they smoke whole cannabis cigarettes in the united states that's crazy we like to mix it with tobacco so you know, I would love to see them suss out tobacco use with cannabis use in these populations. Um, but, you know, if, you know, I guess, you know, as a chemist, do you, would you have a chemistry question about the products they're using in, in that regard? Like, are they using THC products, CBD products, or is there something you'd want to know about what they're using? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, that makes a difference, right? What sort of levels are they ingesting? What's the form that they're ingesting? Um, is it an athlete that's rubbing CBD topicals on for sore muscles? Um, you know, these are all very different usage profiles. Um, so, you know, pulling together, like, I was excited to read this paper because it, you know, says a systematic review in the title. And then once I dig through the whole thing, I'm like, well, you just threw out like all of all of the research that potentially says anything and kind of were like, eh, 
there's no real correlation and it's definitely not an enhancer. Um, but ultimately I think this, the, the good that I see out of this publication or the useful knowledge is potentially for sports authorities, decision makers, I don't know what you call them, but this is scientifically showing that it's not an enhancement, um, at least in these, you know, use categories. And so should we be penalizing athletes for it? One of the best, you know, memes I saw about the Shakari incident of her getting kicked out or not being allowed to participate in the Olympics for having cannabis in her system was if you can be the fastest runner and smoke weed at the same time, like you should get two gold medals. <laughs> yeah. I feel like the only thing that'd make me a fast runner when I'm stoned, if there was like a big bowl of chicken wings at the end of the race, like that's the only thing that'd get me really moving. But I think you bring up a good point about levels of consumption because every professional, you know, you mentioned the Olympics, they have, um, allegedly 150 nanograms per mil as the, the cutoff, which is, you know, on the higher end of allowances for programs, you know, the NFL allows 35 nanograms. It's, it's noticeably less the NCAA college. Like it's so weird, like college compared to professional sports has the strictest cutoff. It's like college is the time when they say everyone's supposed to experiment with things. Not if you're an athlete, cause you'll get withheld from 50% of the season for the first penalty. Meanwhile, if uh, it's not until, you know, uh, the sixth violation in the NFL that you'd be looking at a suspension for a year, you know, versus just a fine uh, for pay or something like that. So I think it's, it's really interesting that some of these professional agencies don't publicly list what their threshold test is or the analysis that they use. And that the timing of the testing is really interesting. NFL, all players are tested once in the preseason, then random testing in season if permitted in contract. And then, but like the NBA, it's regular random testing up to four times. NHL, it's just random testing. The baseball, you must have reasonable cause for testing during the regular season. Um, and it's just like, uh, you know, it just seems so random that they would set each agency, each league, each professional sports association has such random levels for drug, drug testing as well as, um, but they all seem to have one thing in common is they like to test the P. That's their big um, approach. Uh, but uh, Nigam, did you find, you know, anything interesting about this, um, you know, in terms of the, this review, you know, while saying, you know, what I found interesting, for example, in this review was while saying it had no effect on performance, they do mention that THC can have, you know, anti-anxiety effects at low doses. And they cite a couple studies and, you know, they say that there might be anxiety relief before, during, or after performance. And the studies, you know, reveal that this is one of the reasons athletes use cannabis. And I was surprised that they would mention that, but then say, oh, that doesn't have an effect on performance. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, if you're in a high stress sport, um, you know, maybe that'll allow you to focus more as Anna alluded to, but there's, was there something that jumped out at you in this study, Nigam? Yeah. So I'm the one who pulled this study and suggested it for the episode. And then, um, and I did that based, you know, off title, off the abstract, off the date it was published off the, so on kind of like Amber was saying, I was excited to read it. And then I had the exact same feeling that Amber had. So I won't be redundant, but I was like, well, Eh, you know what what is this other than and i say this all the time we talk about it all the time other than publishing something 
what what is it what is it for what is it worth so to go into like a tiny bit more detail this is and we see this before this is like a, an amalgamation and analysis of prohibition research so jahan you could speak to this where you know prior there's like a big barrier in advocacy and in decrim and legalization in the states because you know they would say oh well the scientific evidence shows that thc kills and it's like well why because someone did a prohibition study where they smoked rats to death with cannabis smoke right so it's like it kind of reminds me of that so it goes back to what Amber was saying it goes back to what anna's saying it's like okay so you surveyed a bunch of nervous high school kids uh you you excluded a lot of meaningful literature you it just so i i don't think the outcome here it's like if i was a professional like boxer and i was like well if you exclude all the fights i lost i'm undefeated you know it's it's kind of like that but in reverse it's like yeah (laughs) if you excluded all the fights i won this paper doesn't look that great (laughs) you know it's like so um you know we we could we could poke a little we can poke it a little more, but I'm not feeling the need. I guess what I would say to the listener is, you know, if you want to understand what we're saying, check it out. Other than that, there might be more meaningful uses of your time to understand yeah. sport and cannabis. I, I think so. And, you know, one last thing I'll just say about sort of the strengths and limitations of this is in their strengths and limitations section, <laughs> they suddenly out of left field just say we suspect that the use of cbd among athletes has risen exponentially and they said there's a dire need to study the prevalence and use of cbd in the athletic population but yet none of their like that is not what's getting showing up what's showing up is the use of thc people aren't failing drug tests for cbd they're failing drug tests for thc so you know i do wonder what the purpose was of this study Maybe it's just a call for CBD, but it is an area that does not have a lot of sort of, um, you know, expert opinion, uh, research that's been analyzed or repeated. And, you know, there might be some biases here. And, and that's the subject of our next article that I was super stoked to find, Nigam, from the Journal of Public Understanding of Science. I don't want to say the acronym out loud for that, but um, it's a very interesting article. It's called How Psychedelic Researchers Self-Admitted Substance Use and Their Association with Psychedelic Culture Affects People's Perception of Their Scientific Integrity and the Quality of Their Research. So this is something that I definitely experienced in the cannabis realm. Um, When you go to cannabis research conferences, like I, I was literally told once someone just came up to me, my first conference said, oh, oh, you're from California. I'm like, yeah, I'm a student there. They're like, oh, don't smoke cannabis or all these people won't want to work with you. Like, don't let them see you doing it. And I was like, I'm just here to look at some PowerPoints, man. Like, <laughs> you know, and it's also like how you dress, how you talk. And, and I found that this was a very interesting study where they looked at how self-admitted use of psychedelics and associations with psychedelic culture affected the public or the participants in the study of which they had many um, their evaluation of a researcher's integrity and the quality of their research and it was very interesting the way they designed it i mean they had uh, a fake research study so in in they did set up three studies and in studies one and two they found that self-admitted substance use negatively affected people's assessment 
of a fictitious researcher's integrity in terms of being unbiased, professional, and honest, but not the quality of their research or how much value and significance they ascribe to their findings. So if you're like, I've tried mushrooms and this is my research, people will be like, well, you're not very professional. Uh, you know, you know, maybe you're not very, you know, honest. It's like, but you're being very, you know, sort of like my, I was like, I uh, had a bit of a paradox there. But if you had an association with a psychedelic culture, like you participated in a drum circle, or, you know, wore a tie-dye shirt or something stereotypically associated with psychedelic culture, that had a much more negative effect of perceived quality. Like your research would be less valid, less true, unbiased. And one of the things they can look at was a meditation session. So if like someone sees you meditating at a com research psychedelic conference, they might like think that you have less valid research. According to this study, I know I'm speaking like very broad strokes or conceptually, but it's really interesting too, that if the participants in this study had personal experience with psychedelics, they were less likely to be affected by these things uh, versus people who had no such experience uh, evaluated this stuff much more negatively. And so as psychedelics are getting more ground, how researchers conduct and carry themselves might be really important. Um, that's why I think Timothy Leary always had a big smile on his face. It was a marketing guy who said, hey, while the government's trying to throw you in jail and you know, it's bad PR. He had a smile for every picture, you know, so he's it's like, you know, this crisp smile and every picture just about that he has on is sort of a way to give the public a better perception of the psychedelic research space. Uh, so that's a roundabout way. I'm going to step off my toadstool, but Amber, I'd love to get your thoughts on this like article for me that really resonated with, with me um, in terms of how the public perceives a researcher's value. Yeah, this was really interesting, I thought. I mean, it was, I laughed out loud while I was reading it a couple of times, but um, the, a couple of things stood out and I'm going to go right to the conclusion. <laughs> There's so many kind of small nuances to the way they set these different studies up. I don't think we have time to go into them, but um, I mean, the quote at the end says, generally the way in which scientists act and behave can decidedly affect the public's evaluation of their research. This is something both scientists and lay people should be aware of. And so just was like, oh, my parents will be glad to know there's data to suggest that people will judge you based on your behavior in public. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get paranoid. Yeah. <laughs> um, thanks, science. <laughs> <laughs> we discovered this basic foundational element of epidemiological research. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think then they go on to say as well that um, given that this occurs, um, that without carrying or with carrying out this research, for the most part, in the hands of people with no association with psychedelic culture, understanding which factors may affect the public perception of psychedelic science seems to be a worthwhile endeavor. So I think the part that stuck out to me was, you know, in the hands of people with no association with psychedelic culture. And that I think we need to make sure that as this burgeoning industry moves forward that we're, we're not forgetting the ancient and current indigenous use of these types of materials and, and formulations. And I'm already seeing it, right? A bunch of white people writing listicles about the white-led companies that are gonna lead this industry. And so I think, yes, this might color people's perception of research in various areas. And there's certainly lots of different areas that are considered research, right? Is it pharmaceutical? Is it cultivation? Is it you know, different types of research? But 
Um, if we're not honoring and paying attention to the knowledge that already exists in these areas, we're going to end up like all the rest of the colonialists in history, um, appropriating things that we shouldn't be. Yeah. And, and it's funny you mentioned um, we have to respect the sort of indigenous cultures because in this study, they had people read things like this is a study where you know, Dr. Steve or whatever is going to be presenting their research on mental disorders. And he has experience taking psychedelics and talks about it frequently. And then they rate it. And then his participants were also introduced to mock pictures of venues in which the conference took place. So the one would might be a spacious hall with colorful light installations versus an ordinary university auditorium. Where would you think the results would be more credible? And then it also had like activities outside the conference, like including a shamanic drum circle versus like uh, a party at a local brewery for the conference. And it's funny that you mentioned like we have to respect indigenous cultures when people see, think shamanic drum circle, it's like, oh, less credible versus like everyone drinking a bunch of beer and getting drunk at, at a brewery somehow makes their research more credible. Um, I wonder if the beer companies like paid for this research, <laughs> but it's also like other activities like group meditation versus a 5k conference run, an art exhibit with psychedelic art versus postmodern art, a conference dinner with communal tables and floor seating versus a typical conference center. It was, I had never really thought about these things, but I, you know, I wonder if there's a bit of Western cultural bias here, you know, related to like, What's wrong with sitting on the floor to eat? Some of the most high-end Japanese restaurants in the world you sit on the floor to eat. I don't think that their food is of less quality to that or their health standards are of less quality. But I never really thought like communal tables versus typical conference center tables would somehow manipulate people's perception or credibility of the data that's presented there. Um, but yeah, I found that interesting. But, um, you know, Anna, I wanted to ask you, you know, I know we're talking about researchers and us nerds, like going to conferences with our data and everyone judging us. And, you know, like I, like I, I used to work for an organization, a nonprofit in the cannabis space. And in our employee handbook, it said, we cannot wear tie dye to work. We'll be sent home. And so that was, it was part of the stigma. Like you're not allowed to do that, but I had to imagine that you've mentioned it a little bit, but maybe you could speak to this article a little bit. Like, are athletes who talk about psychedelic use or somehow does that take away their accomplishments? Like if you have someone like yourself or Riley Cote, you know, who are accomplished athletes, then talk about this stuff. Does it somehow cast shade on their achievements? Is there a bit of a stigma there? Like, oh, you know, he was just a pro player. He wasn't that good. He's, like, he's better than like 99% of the people walking around outside. Uh, so, you know, I guess I kind of want to get a sense like in different, depending whether you're beginning your career you're in your career or, or, you know, after your career, how does perhaps psychedelics, do you, do you think the public would respond favorably or has the public respond favorably, favorably to athletes who have been open about psychedelic use? You know, I'm not sure what Riley's experience has been and he's very outspoken, but I mostly hear positive feedback around um, sharing my personal experiences. That said, I'm probably, you know, that's a self-selected group, people who are coming and giving me some praise for that because they got something from it. But um, obviously people in the wider world judge, especially when they don't know firsthand. And we see that reflected in this article 
Um, furthermore, we found that this negative effect did not show up for participants who themselves had experience with the use of psychedelics. You know, uh, the, the negative association was, or the research in this article was only devalued by participants who had no personal experience with psychedelics. And I think that honestly ties back to what Amber was getting at and what we were just talking about around um, cultural and intellectual arrogance. Um, mm. You know, and it is a bias that that these substances somehow put you into a uh, a frame of mind that's not to be trusted, right? You're, you're somehow your logic and your intellectual abilities are are impaired or something. And that's, uh, from personal experience, you know, that's not the case. And I think, um, wow, it's such a different approach. It is, a, um, it's cultural, like Western culture. It's our, our bias that like logic and, you know, science is objective and, you know, we cannot be shaded by any personal. Yeah. And that's, not true. Yeah, no, I get it. It's like if you were if you were a researcher who studied like water and like you can't drink water because that'd be a clear bias yeah. in your research if you really liked water. Um, you can't use oil if you're an oil and gas researcher because then you'd have a bias because you think about how great it is all the time to have oil, gas, or water. And I think that you know I think there is a balance there. But you know I think the opposite extreme for me is true. Is if I see people who cannot appropriately discuss the culture, whether it's modern culture, subculture, ancient culture, um, you know, I, I start to discredit them because I feel like they have not invested the time. Now, you don't have to use a substance to study a substance. You have to use it to, um, to, to be a credible researcher, obviously not. But I think there's a certain level of passion that has to be there, a certain level of being genuinely interested in your subject. And I've seen, and I think that um, that's what I hope doesn't happen with this type of research is people become way more shy about sharing their data because they're like, I don't want a bunch of stigma because I'm out in the field, you know, characterizing the 100 or so species of psilocybin making mushrooms. And everyone's going to think I'm just some like freaking hippie when in reality I've been living in South America in the woods for like six years doing my thesis. Like, I think that that's it's such an unfortunate stigma. And like, you know, maybe if they did this study in like Argentina or like Colombia or, or, you know, maybe in some other, in, in, in some place in South America, there might be a different response to the perception of psychedelic use. If they were in a country or in a region where it's very prominent and there's tourism there where people are coming to, you know, participate in these ceremonies and things like that. Um, but I really like the point about cultural and intellectual arrogance. And I think that's, that's, that's the one bias that they did not control for in this survey. But, uh, you know, Nigam, I mean, the, the scientist's yeah, yeah, name was, the fake scientist's name was Dan Miller. Like, obviously a white guy. Wait, that's yeah. kind of funny because I know the real Dan Miller, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I do and too. He's great. Yeah, does he Maybe have a beard? Guy. Yeah, but um, but just for the listener, I want to read this study. So the fake, the fictitious article presented in one of the studies was fictitiously published in the Lancet Journal of Psychiatry and was entitled "Rapid and Sustained Symptom Reduction Following Psilocybin Treatment for General Anxiety in Adult Patients: Preliminary Results of a Placebo-Controlled Study." 
and yeah, they had, you know, Annie Cummings is on there, Martha Thompson. Uh, yes. And, and Daniel Miller is the, the lead author. But I thought, why not just use a couple real studies? Maybe they'd get sued if they're like, had real studies up there. And they're like, yeah, Robin Carhart Harris, he smokes pot all the time and just writes papers. He just smokes pot and writes papers. And people are like, hmm, I don't know if I can trust it. He's only published in high-end journals. Um, yeah, because I mean, like, what does it say about the Lancet? If, like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just so bizarre to me that it's not so much where the data is appearing, like in a prestigious journal. It's whether or not one of the people's on that study had has experience with subculture or using a product. I, I, I don't know. I feel like this may be a trend, but it's it's maybe not a trend that it would continue in the future. I don't know. Nigam, do you think that this uh, sort of, I don't know, biasy, the stigma is going to get worse as time goes on? Or do you think this is just like a, a little flare up? Uh, I, I couldn't possibly call this a flare up. I mean, Stigma has been, it's just, it's just wild. So on occasion, you know, that sport study we read like that, that was, you know, we already commented. That was kind of iffy, um, but it didn't like make me angry. I was like, well, and you know, I've seen this before this one, this study, I really was, this really kind of made me feel something because the, the stigma is just a huge, huge issue just continuously. And I'm going to stretch it out a little bit. I, I'm pretty open-minded person. I have been for some time. Stigma about cannabis, stigma about psychedelics, stigma about drugs in general. I would be really curious, Anna, for you to chime in uh, about like, you know, your like decrim work on all drugs, that kind of stuff. Cause it's like, it's so heavy, but then we have stigma just beyond that. There's stigma about so many things. Where do you live? What is your affiliation what is your the way you look what is um all this stuff so um i, I could like for example even on the most basic level i have a shirt a green tie-dye shirt that has smurfs on it gathering mushrooms and i showed it to somebody and they're like whoa did you get that at like a fish concert i was like no it was on sale at marshall's like <laughs> like i did i found it like in a regular store, I did was never I didn't never been to a fish concert like and you know the yeah. the other thing I guess the other and I do want to toss it to Anna because I'm curious about that uh, her the the drug stigma thing because it's you know topical to the show but one other thing I want to bring up that just like I couldn't help but just rang so loud in my head it's like Jahan you were kind of making the point I'll make it a little more precisely like so a person cares about a topic deeply and then they study it at a high level like boo i mean what like it just like blows my mind so you have like a cancer researcher wins a nobel prize because someone in their family got cancer and they were motivated to take their career down that path then that's and that's glorious and everyone loves them and whatever but it's like you have a drug researcher a psychedelic researcher pursuing that because of their interest and then this niche example that i want to say is about uh alexander shulgin who is you know, uh, legendary psychedelic chemist, you know, uh, really, I don't know if you call him the, the father of the grandfather of whatever, but like this guy, even till now I was, uh, watching this event, uh, that we've talked about on the show before from city light, uh, city lights books here in, uh, SF. And they had this event honoring, uh, Shulgin's life. And they had a bunch of his colleagues and friends on in the seminar, 
and it was David Nichols. Uh, and if folks don't know who David Nichols is, I mean, also just like super influential psychedelics research over the last 40 years, I became highly familiar with his work uh, when I was at Purdue, um, where, where he had his lab for most of that time. And David Nichols was saying this thing that when we started doing the psychedelics research, everyone is doing these rat studies and these fruit fly studies and these the receptor studies in the Petri dish. And the only reason we knew any of it meant anything is because you could write a letter to Shulgin and he would write back and tell you about what happened in the human brain, in his human brain or in his ecosystem's human brains, right? And he says, literally, you have like the leader in psychedelic chemistry last 40 years telling you this guy's enthusiasm in his field and willingness to dive into it is the only reason we understand how these substances work today. And he's saying this like in the year 2021 on the seminar, you know? So anyways, 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 the point I'm getting back to is where's psychedelic science without Shulgin? Where's psychedelic science without Nichols? Where's psychedelic science without uh, Carhartt Harris? You know, Jahan, maybe he did smoke a joint and, and write a paper. You know, maybe he does have some personal experience. Where is the cultural <laughs> aspect of it if Michael Pollan never took a trip? You know what I mean? Like, so anyways, um, I, I do want to just let us before you pass it. I just want to say, yeah. I'm sorry, Dr. Carhart Harris, if you're listening <laughs> to this, I did not mean to accuse you of being a pothead. My bad. I, I just want to say it was a joke. <laughs> but Anna, I'm curious. Um, can, can you speak a little bit to like your decrim work and the stigma? I'm just so curious what it was like on the ground as you were working through that. Yeah, I mean, I was mostly serving as kind of an ambassador, so to speak, um, just endorsing and promoting and spreading awareness that this measure was going to be on the ballot and why I supported it. Um, there are actually two related me measures, the psilocybin therapy legalization and then the, the broad um, drug decrim. And they sort of went hand in hand, like we need them both to pass uh, together. Um, but the, the aspect of that is um, essentially normalization or destigmatization, really. And a lot of it is cultural biases. Um, the message coming from me, like, I'm a, I'm a blonde white lady that looks relatively clean cut, uh, depending on your, you know, perspective. But, you know, and that I'm, I'm smiley and I'm out there like, hey, this is something that's good for public health. And this isn't as scary as you might think at first, because here's some data, but people don't really care about data. They care about how things make them feel. And so if I can establish a rapport with an audience and have a positive connection, right. And so I think that ties back in because we, to the kind of the cultural aspect of science, because we like to pretend again, that science is objective, but um, you know, my background, like I have a master's in communication and my uh, research lens was sort of more along the anthropological um, side of uh, things. So I think acknowledging the role of the, uh, you know, the participant observer is important. We act like the act, you know, observing something doesn't affect it, but it does. And so I think openly acknowledging that to me is a lot more realistic and a lot more beneficial. Um, so. Uh, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to go to ICRS, the um, conference in 2019, and 
also had the lovely experience after hours of consuming some cannabis with scientists from around the world, some top scientists. It was really cool. And I, you didn't, you know, I was surprised that the little circle out behind the hotel, it was pretty big, actually big circle, but it was like, Oh, so-and-so is, Oh, so-and-so. Okay. Um, you know, you could tell the people who wouldn't be there from some of the talks that were given, but you wouldn't necessarily know who would be there. And so to me, it does give more credibility because um, it's very awkward when, when researchers are speaking on topics uh, like as if this is some, like this, this exotic tribe uses this substance. And it's like a commonplace thing for a lot of people, you know, cannabis products in particular. I really like that is it's, it's often surprising who might drink or who might like to use cannabis or who might use psychedelics. And you can't just tell, you know, I remember, uh, I've been to a number of ICRS conferences. I, I love going to that conference. And I remember there was a guy who was in Sweden and he wore, he came on stage with like a Viking helmet on. And I was like, this dude is like high as a kite. Like who would do that? Turned out he's like, never used any drugs in his life. It's just who he is. But like, I was already in stigma mode. I'm like, uh-huh, that's your data. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay, hippie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why don't you take, why don't you go raid a village or something? Well, uh, and that's, but, yeah. that's the thing. I know, uh, I know we need to go to the game soon, but, and I know I was harping on people having stigma about drugs and, and tie dye and all this stuff, but um, there's also reverse stigma, right? Think about, uh, and we've talked about this on the show. We've talked about it in Clubhouse. You know, we've we've reviewed some of these like different training programs. There's this crazy thing happening right now where there's all these psychedelic therapists, psychotherapy programs popping up, training regimens popping up for like the future army of psychedelic therapists to, you know, facilitate the mental health revolution and all this. And um. The, these people aren't required to have a, to have had a psychedelic experience. So in that case, you know, is it fair or un, is it more or less fair to have a stigma towards that person? I feel like that's less. It's I could be biased here, but I feel like that's less of a stigma and more of like just a reasonable requisite. Like it would be it would be weird if Anna was out here, you know chief communications officer and she had and she's supposed to communicate about cannabinoids and she never tried cannabinoids right so um anyways I'm just if, going, I was I, rugby, if i was a rugby coach would never played rugby oh that's e- that's almost worse i mean yeah. wow yeah. It's like, yeah i would i would completely agree with that and, and if i ever had to you know found that a psychedelic therapy would be potentially a long-term treatment for a condition that i acquired over the years like, I, I don't know how comfortable I would feel with a professional who did not have a personal experience with it because, you know, these substances aren't easily understood on paper and graphs, you know, and I feel like someone might be more sort of on the ball if they understood all the ups and downs and turns that those experiences can take and had experienced themselves, you know. So, I, yeah, I, I completely agree with your comments. Well, uh, we're running out of HLI time and we still have a little game to play. So that'll be it uh, for our research discussion for the moment. We'll take a short break and come back with our game for this episode.
Marku and Aurora, we understand that navigating the investment landscape in cannabis and psychedelics is complex. We utilize our in-house expertise in science to support investors and innovators. Reach out to us to start a conversation about how we can help guide your investment decisions and prepare your next venture for success. And we're back. Welcome to today's game. Today, our group will be playing for the grand prize of helping to expand scientific thought. Today's game is called Don't Be an Acetate Hole. It is basically two truths and a lie about THCO acetate, a semi-synthetic THC analog. So uh, derivatives of cannabinoids have gotten a lot of press recently. So I'm going to read you three factoids about THCO acetate or just simply THC acetate. And I want you, the participants uh, in this podcast, to try and suss out which one is the falsehood. So the first one, the process to make THCO acetate from THC is the same chemistry used to make heroin from morphine. So if you take opium poppies, you get a juice out of it, you react it. It's no different than taking a distillate from hemp and reacting it with acetic anhydride. You put acidic groups on it. Heroin is to morphine as THC acetate is the THC. The second factoid, Delta-8 and THC acetate would both be considered analogs of Delta-9 THC. There was a 1986 law, nasty piece of legislation passed by Congress called the Federal Analog Act that said if you make an analog or a similar molecule to something that's already illegal, such as Delta-9 THC, that analog you've made is also illegal. Um, so, uh, you know, no one should harbor any illusions that this is all legal. Three, there is plenty of THC acetate product and safety data out there, despite the government's best efforts to suppress Mishulam's groundbreaking work from 1974, demonstrating that it is safe. All right, participants, we have our three, three factoids with one falsehood hidden in, hidden in there. Is it one, or is it number one, which, uh, you know, heroin is the morphine as THC acetate is the THC involving the same chemical process? Is it two, that all of these THC analogs are basically considered illegal under the Federal Analog Act? Or is it number three, uh, there is plenty of THC acetate product and safety data out there. The government has suppressed it and Mishulam's published all about it. Jehan, we're trying to pick the false one. Yep. Two, two truths and a lie style. Yep. Two truths and a lie. Not two yeah. lies and a truth. Yeah. yeah, so. yeah. Or, three, so. or three lies. <laughs> and these are all backed up by references. I didn't make these up because I was angry um, at, you know, chemists or something like this. this these come from recent articles uh, inter interviewing two experts in the field. So, um, you know, Nigam, I'm going to, since you're the, the reigning champ here, you have the most wins. I'm going to give you the opportunity to maybe think through this a little bit. You don't have to make your final decision, but where you stand right now yeah yeah i can comment uh just i'll just start it off so the first one um yeah i you know you told me that i couldn't do a uh, quick quick look at some uh some chemical schemes <laughs> so uh, the first one it's a little hard for me to comment on it as a chemist i'm feeling the need to like look at the at the reactions here um 
but before I can comment, so I'm feeling a little ambiguous about one. Um, number two, Analog's Act is definitely a real thing, totally an issue. It's been an issue in the psychedelic space as well. It actually caused a lot of unsafe things to happen um, with synthetic cannabinoids, with uh, derivatives of like 2CB compounds in the 90s and 2000s. Um, so that's real, um, I think. Uh, and then the thing about number three, you know, did Mishulam synthesize it? Did he do a few studies? Sure. Uh, yeah. Did, is there plenty of safety data? I don't know. about. I don't know about that one. Um, so, uh, th that's kind of my, my first pass. So, so you're feeling, you're feeling good about, uh, the second one, but one and three are in a clear gray area for you, right? Yeah. Now. And if I could, and if I could, you know, break the rules of the game for like 90 seconds, I could be so more tell firm. You what, well, I'm trying to respect well, the game. So well, while, um, while Amber and Anna are, are going through it, I will allow you an internet search, but try okay. not to look at articles specifically about uh THC estate. So so Amber, do you wanna I had a yeah, I had a clarification. So these were these were all quotes that you at that people actually said or that were printed on the internet. And these aren't we're not trying to find um the one that you made up. We're trying to find the one that is not based in fact. Uh a little bit of both. So <laughs> gotcha. there are the so these are so two of these I would argue are absolutely valid. And one of these, I would say, is completely made up. So there's one that was made up. These are, yeah, obviously pulled from expert testimony or interviews and slightly altered. But yeah, it's but just 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 like listening to you say that. I, I think okay. Well, I won't say my vote yet because Anna didn't go. But I think I know. I think I know. I think I have my vote. I'm going to let Anna give her thoughts and I have one more thing to add before I make it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Here's my thought process. Okay. Num I mean, they're all plausible on their face, like sort of initially like, Oh, that could be true. Um, number one, I'm at a real disadvantage as a couple of chemists in the group. And so number one, I have no idea um, if that could be true or not. Um, number two, you know, this, this sounds plausible. Um, the government likes to, you know, I know that depending on the source of something where it's extracted, like CBD is fine if you extract it from hemp, but if you extract it from, you know, marijuana, then it's illegal. So um, this like, you know, it seems, uh, I don't know, but because designer drugs are hard to ban, you can tweak them a little. And so I, I wonder exactly how accurate this is, but it seems plausible. And then for number three, this also seems plausible because governments like to ignore um research that you know shows the benefits of psychoactive substances that they don't control well but i do wonder about mishulam you know the government's the government's efforts to suppress mishulam's work from 74 that would mean the israeli government right because that's where he was based and i don't know if they really were ever trying to suppress his work it seems like it's mostly been um supported or celebrated so if i had to guess i might i might guess at three okay so you're saying i, I that was beautiful anna because you you know you don't have a, a hardcore chemistry background so but but even just on the surface of it you're like it sounds plausible it's a reaction that's been used in the past why not apply it to other substances for number one 
Number two, there's all sorts of different uh, federal things written about the legality of cannabinoids, whether you're looking at the hemp farm bill or you're talking to the DEA or you're talking to the FDA or you're talking to the local licensing department in your state. Everyone's a little bit different. So yeah, so you could be like, yeah, absolutely. Someone could have an opposite. This could actually be true under the Federal Analog Act. Um, but again, you also have the hemp farm bill and which one supersedes the other. Um, but you know, yeah, the United States has no shortage of paradoxes. And the third one, yeah, I mean, I thought you brought up a great point. Like, yeah, the government doesn't seem to have uh, suppressed Mishulam's work too much. Um, you know, he seems to get a lot of credit for everything he's done. Um, and I mean, I, I can't imagine being, I mean, if I was 91 and the cannabis industry kept calling me to give talks at their little conferences, I would start, I'd be, I'd be angry. I'd be like, stop calling <laughs> me. Not... Life goals. <laughs> I'll start, I would be doing remote talks starting at age 70. Like I would not be showing up to those things anymore. Um, but you know, I thought the way you, you thought through that, and it was great. So Amber, I don't know if we want to go back to you and you want to, you want to put some chips down on the board. We got Anna saying one is true, two is true, and number three is the lie. So I was completely coincidentally reading about THCO acetate yesterday in my work. Um, and if I had not been doing that reading and I saw these three statements, I think I would say statement one is the lie, even though I'm a chemist and I, you know, I don't know the specific chemistry to turn. THC into THCO acetate, but the the phrase um, heroin is to morphine is THC acetate is to THC that seems very sensationalist. Um, however, I read that quote yesterday <laughs> um, in an article, and so um, I'm going to go with three based on the there is plenty of THC acetate product and safety data out there because I am definitely not convinced that there is. Um, that data out there. So, oh. so you see, Anna, you're you're influencing researchers and scientists in the space. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Nigam, have you done your homework yet? Are you feeling Are you feeling comfortable? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, ninety seconds later, uh, I agree. And now you know I, more about how to manufacture heroin. Yeah, yeah. Great. Whoever whoever is tracking my IP address, it was purely for it was purely yeah. for research purposes. I promise. <laughs> Yeah, trying to win this game, man. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm the, I'm the, re I'm trying to keep my record. But I think we're all about to win the game. I, so I vote three is false. Also, okay, all right. Well, let's just take a look. Let's start with number two. So for the big reveal, so delta eight and THC acetate would both be considered analogs of THC, and under the Federal Analog Act, they'd absolutely be considered something that is not legal. Now, for those of you saying, oh, what about the hemp farm bill? What about this? Well, this isn't the hemp farm bill. So this is absolutely true. This is the Federal Analog Act we're referring to. And again, we're not lawyers here. We're just saying that this is how it is written. Um, let's go to the first one. So, you know, you might think that this, this phrase, heroin is the morphine, it's THC, acetate is the THC, is a little sensationalistic, but it is true. Uh, this is a real statement, and the reaction is very similar and just involves putting acidic groups to enhance the potency of uh, this THC compound, so making it more potent, um, which, again, is uh, I wonder why you'd want to go from a partial sort of agonist to a full agonist uh, at the receptor may not 
it might be dysphoric for some people, which means that number three, there is plenty of THC acetate product and safety data out there, and Mishulam has published about it, is absolutely made up. There is no known product or safety data about THCO acetate, and that Mishulam has not published about this, and the government has not suppressed research about this. There just isn't any research about the safety, toxicology, or risks associated with this compound. So I guess that makes me the acetate hole, because you all got it right. Uh, <laughs> all right well that's today's game thank you listener for sticking to the end we appreciate it thanks for clicking tapping swiping or however you are hearing this we appreciate it thank you to our trusty audio engineer for mixing and editing the show thank you to our podcast cover artists check out the custom artwork for each episode and the link to the artist all right thank you so much and we'll be talking to you later <laughs>